welcome to the Vevolution podcast. Since starting in late 2016, Vevolution has been creating inspiring events for the plant-powered generation. Each episode of this podcast will share with you stories and ideas told by plant-based thought leaders from the Vevolution stage. In this panel discussion, Vevolution's Damien Clarkson speaks to fellow leading entrepreneurs and investors in the plant-based space about investment and how to secure it. The panelists discuss mistakes they previously made, where to find investors, and so much more. This talk was recorded on the Positive Future stage at Vevolution Festival 2019. Welcome to the investment panel here at Vevolution Festival. I'm super excited to be hosting this because this has been an area we've done a lot in at Vevolution and you know we get so many people coming to us looking to learn more about raising money for their companies. So I'm really like happy to have four of the most amazing founders I know on stage with me. So um, who shall I start? I'll start with Emma. So Emma Sinclair, you might know from previous Vevolutions, is the youngest My person. Fame. Yeah, I know. That's, that's what I'm going to open with. Yeah. <laughs> in the world to IPO a company on the stock exchange. She's also a huge advocate for women in business and her startup, Enterprise Alumni, recently became the first world's first scale up. <laughs> became the world's first gender equal tech company, which is super cool. Um, Pippa Murray, founder of Pippa Nut. Hey, Pip. It's an award winning food brand now available in over 550. 5,500 stores, and Pip was recently named Startup Entrepreneur of the Year at the NatWest Great British Business Awards. Uh, Mikhail Van Drusen is an impact investor in the plant-based economy. Previously, he was a tech entrepreneur and ended up sending a company to eBay, which is very cool. Um, he's invested in a diverse portfolio of plant-based businesses and is also one of the early investors in the vegetarian butcher. Yeah. It's been a great success. Mm -hmm. so, well that. And um, JP... I think JP is like one of the top appearing people at Revolution Festival. <laughs> I've got a chart. Iconic. Started his fresh frozen food startup with his brother Alex in 2016. They've gone on to be one of the UK's real big breakout plant-based business success stories. And previously, first he worked as a consultant with McKinsey before heading to Kenya where he set up several startups in the areas of health and banking. And um, I'm Damien Clarkson, co-founder of Evolution. Um, I've been building Feevolution for the last three years with my co-founder Judy. And we do a lot to support plant-based businesses, including running uh, investment competition, Pitch and Plant. Um, tech guys, can you just see if there's a bit of feedback here on the mics? Is it easier if I use the, um, the upper mic? Yeah, right, we can pass it down then. Cool. All right, that sounds... So can everyone hear? Is, it, is that okay, yeah? Great. Okay, so we'll start at the beginning. So all of you have raised money for different companies. So talk a bit about your first experience of fundraising. So Pip, maybe talk about the first time you went out to raise some money. Yeah, so um, Pip and Nut's been going for about five years so, and I raised my first round of investment about four months before I launched the brand. Um, it wasn't hugely successful initially, I've got to admit. So I uh, actually raised uh, sort of 100,000 pounds on Crowdcube um, but prior to that, I did do a lot of pitching to angels. And actually, one of the reasons why I turned to Crowdcube was because I really struggled to find anyone that would 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 put the capital into the business. Um, I guess context here was that you know I was pre-revenue, so I hadn't launched the business. I got the branding, packaging, uh, production, kind of supply chain set up, but me personally hadn't ever run a business before. Um, I think on paper probably wasn't hugely investable um, at that particular <laughs> point, so to be fair, I almost don't blame people. 
Um, but but for me, what I found in that early sort of first fundraise that I was doing was that um, almost people were more willing to put smaller amounts in, so 10, 15,000 pounds, but trying to find someone that at that stage for me, when I had very little experience and very little proof points for the business, um, yeah, there wasn't anyone that would give me the full amount. So I turned to Crowdcube and actually it was a hugely successful campaign, um, raised the money in about nine days on that platform and that was sort of the first amount of money that I needed to kind of kick off production. Um, and I, I really recommend crowdfunding for that first early stage investment. Um, I had a great experience from it, but I think for me what kind of has been a, a plus coming out the back of it is actually you do get a group of investors, 80 people invested in that round. Um, but they're incredibly light touch and I think that was for me a real blessing for the first two years Didn't really have anyone really on my back about anything didn't have to produce any board papers I could just crack on and grow the business and there was sort of low-level reporting, but nothing too onerous and I think for me Someone that enjoys just running the business and being in the business not dealing with too much bureaucracy. That was perfect. It's really great Fantastic and um, JP maybe talk about your first round with all plants or yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. Well, um, the, the thing I'll, I'll say ahead of that is that I had raised um, around <coughs> half a dozen rounds prior to all plants, uh, and the first day of the time I tried to raise money, I failed miserably, um, and ended up. And what, what did they say to you? What was the the main main reason? Um, yeah, so to get the uh, my first venture off the ground, we which was a a Africa's first mobile banking uh, proposition. Um, in Kenya, this is back in 0809, I was raising for it. Uh, initially, we raised through um, a variety of very, uh, very, let's say, helpful R&D innovation grants. World Bank, Diffid, Mastercard Foundation, so that got us off the ground. But when it came to actually raising proper venture capital um, a few years in, the fact that starting a bank from scratch is really hard really hit home. Um, and so we, we, a lot of things were kind of the classic kind of tick boxes and everything checked out. Uh, but the fact that we didn't have a regulatory license, which you kind of need to hold deposits, <laughs> it, it, it scared people away. Uh, and how, I did. How I, many months did it take before you realised? I was, I was working on it for six to nine months, um, and we got a really exciting venture uh, capital fund, Omijar Network, uh, lined up to back us. Anyway, it all fell apart. So I learned the hard way that um, raising money is tough. Uh, and you need to really ensure that you are investable, uh, both your team and your proposition. You've got the right proof points uh, for whichever stage you're raising. But when it came to um, all plants, uh, we actually, you know, bootstrapped and, and tried to, to go as far as we could um, before raising. But at a similar time to what Pip just outlined, but I think we were about three or four weeks after launch. So we just made it over the line. So we were actually people trying our food, and we had a little bit of revenue. Um, we did a small kind of angel round um, and initially had always planned to just do the SEIS portion so you can raise 150k in the UK uh, and your investors can get 50% of that back pretty much immediately as a tax break so it's really easy to convince people to give you that money yeah. as long as you're not a complete nothing uh, <laughs> most of the time you can get it so I thought we'd just do that and then we'll work something out once we've validated a bit more um, in, in the next six months uh, but fortunately, what we were building really resonated with people, um, and you know we really we'd, we'd only shipped around 100 parcels, but we managed to end up raising about 800,000, uh, which was helpful because it allowed us to then not have bureaucracy and not have to be raising for a good 18 months and just focus on uh, creating something that people love, which is the hard part. 
yeah, because you don't want your job to be fundraising from the get-go, really. You want to be building the brand, building the business. Yeah. Emma? Like, obviously, yeah. Very different yeah. experiences, probably. First of all, I don't have a consumer brand uh, and never have done. So I've, I've fundraised in every which way. I mean, I've started with nothing. I've done some angel stuff. I've had strategic investment from the sector. Um, I've raised via the stock markets. Um, and one of the things that I think about when I listen to this is it's easy to make people, to an extent, fall in love with your business or to the extent that, for example, I try a vegan brand and I'm like, well, I love that and it's vegan, so I'm in. Um, and, and when it's um, when it's sort of enterprise software or my previous company, which was car parking, it's not, you know, you can't be like, I fucking love your peanut butter or I, <laughs> butter, I love your vegan food. It's like, it's a bit harder to make people fall in love. Um, so crowdfunding, you know, for enterprise software, probably, you know, in, in, in my opinion, for, for lots of reasons, is a slightly harder sell and actually probably wouldn't work because you're, um, probably if you sort of went to pitch to very, very large corporates for large pieces of business and they were like, but you're raising 50 grand on crowdfunding, it just would send the wrong message. So um, I've done it every which way. The one thing that I do know, given what this is, is that there is no one single way. Raising money, you can do it as equity, you can do it as debt, crowdfunding, angels. The thing that I think is really important, assuming that if anyone here is, is thinking of investing in maybe reasonably early stage, is you know my best and earliest investors when I have started everything have been people who either believed in me, well they they believed in me actually, and so whatever it is you're doing or you know the, the sort of value proposition and key metrics and all this stuff that kind of freaks you out when you're right at the beginning, especially when you effectively have not very much to say for yourself, is can you t can you talk to somebody and convince them that what you're talking about, which by the way definitely won't happen, like if you, I, you know, everything. If I look back at my models of all my first business, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to rule the world, it's going to be this, it's like absolutely not, it takes like three times as long. But it's, it's being able to show people that you have the commitment, the backbone, the focus, the intention to at least go in the direction of the journey that you're setting out. Um, and to that extent, I do think asking people that know you, you know, my early, in my current, as so I run a software business now, you know, my early investors, um, there's a couple of things that I think made it easier. Look, I've done it before, so probably, I'm arguably, a it's a little bit easier to convince people to give me money. Um, EIS is the single best thing that the British government uh, did for kind of convincing um, high, high earners. But I went to all the people who knew me before. I went to the former competitor of my last business, who was on the other side of the table from me all the time. So knew how I operated, and at the very least knew that I was nice and honorable and a good negotiator, and gave me money. So I think people that know you, and stand behind your message, you know, I mean, you can't, um, you, you know, there's some things you can't fake, but you, you can present people um, with confidence. And, you know, you need people, you need people to feel that confidence that you feel about your business. So that communication element, I think quite early on is very, very important and find allies. You know, not everyone can give you money, but maybe they can introduce you to someone that can give you money, or maybe they can send you to somebody that might stock your stuff just to get you cracking, which is a great first proof point. You know, there's just like a million different, or debt, you know, I mean, things that there's all kinds of stuff I've done that I wouldn't recommend to anybody, but you know, you can get a credit card for 25 grand. You know, my very earliest business, I definitely was not prudent in some ways, <laughs> but I couldn't, I didn't know anyone, I didn't know how to go get money. So, um, yeah, well, hopefully today we'll, we'll clear up some of that for people and, and save them getting Yeah, everyone rack up great credit card debts. <laughs> and like, you know, then that is my investment advice. But my point being, you know, there's no, there's no one single way, but Agreed. finding allies um, and being you know, and being very committed, but just remember that people are investing in you as much as your groundbreaking idea or food or whatever else it is. Or they're not investing in you. I've been there as well, racking up credit card debt and sleeping in my car even when I had some, when I did 
have no money left. Yeah. I have been on both sides of the fundraising, of course, when I started fundraising with my first tech company. That was crazy. I didn't know anything about fundraising. I talked to the wrong investors all the time. We ended up in Disneyland at some point. <laughs> oh, crazy no, no story. No wife didn't want to invest in technology. Didn't want to invest. <laughs> and uh, I learned the hard way that it's not easy. It takes much longer. I thought I can do it. I go to investors, they give me money. But it doesn't work like that. You need to take at least six months for a proper uh, funding round. I also learned to be flexible. When we didn't get any money, I started another business that actually made money to fund my own first business. Um, my first investment experience as a, for a plant-based business was the vegetarian butcher, and I was an investor looking for nice things. And they were out there. They were really good on their social media. They were networking everywhere. So I got in touch with them. I tweeted them even. I said, I want to be part of your business, and then met them. They were tweeting themselves. They were doing their own Twitter, and uh, it clicked. And I went, went on to be their first investor. Chemistry, and only, right? Yeah. Nice. And it's the team that I invest in. It's true. <laughs> Everything needs to be in order. You need to have an entrepreneur that gives you confidence, that knows the company, that is the company. I love that. You attach uh, your name to it. You wear a T-shirt. <laughs> you have to be the company. It's <laughs> you have enterprise software. <laughs> something different. It's you know. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Tell you something. <laughs> so moving on a bit. Um, so where do you find these investors? I get so many people come up to me going, "Can you introduce me to this person? Do you know someone here? Like, where do, where do people start when they want to look at raising their first round of investment? Where do they find the investors? Well, I, I get approached a lot uh, via LinkedIn. I think that's an amazing uh, uh, network. Uh, also, again, everyone's getting their phone out right now. <laughs> I saw a few people immediately. We're all on the uh, it starts beeping. Now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and also, uh, uh, put your name out there. Uh, tell everybody that you are raising money. Uh, have your pitch. Talk to everybody. Have your pitch. Practice it just a lot of times, even if it's for the wrong investors. But yeah, I think I, I think for the first round uh, as well. It's so important to be able to go to what everyone refers to as family and friends. That doesn't literally mean your parents and your buddies, but like people who are within your social group, who might be long lost uncles or uh, somebody who was your boss when you did an internship when you were 16, just like anyone who knows you, those people are gonna trust you and believe in you more than anyone else could. So you've gotta start there. Um, and if you can get traction there, then you can go on and look elsewhere. Um, and, and the other thing that Mikhail mentioned, which is to practice your pitch a lot, it's interesting to frame it as that because the, the thing, one of the things I, I, I wanted to share today is, is how often we've all been told no. Mm. Like, I've been told no so many times, but you only need to get told yes once, and then you can move forward. Um, no doesn't I, always mean no forever. It means just maybe no for now. Even if it does, yeah. it just means that that. There's so many people who could invest in you, whether it's uh, organisations or funds or people. So if one person says no, it doesn't mean it's the end of the road for you. It just means that's that, that's not the right fit. Uh, and so it's you, you you learn quite quickly to become resilient with it. And the way I frame it for myself is I'm always just practicing until I find the right person, and then bang, and you, and, and you, that's what the practice was for. So, um, so yeah, you have to be comfortable with continuous failure. And I don't know that. Sorry, 
I mean, I was just very quick on, on that point is um, when you are getting those no's, it's, I used to write down all the questions that people would ask me in those meetings. And often people will, there'll be a sticking point for them or it'll constantly come out with the same questions. And it's about refining those responses. So if you um, responded to uh, a growth plan that your projections poorly in the first first time, like refine it, get better at it and make it snappier and just listen, listen to the objections. Um, yeah, a lot of feedback, that's the annoying thing through pitching, particularly in early stage. Mm -hmm. People suddenly think you should launch a jam company too, in my case, as an example. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you kind of have to be like, oh yeah, great idea, really, res uh, really respect that opinion, but <laughs> then kind it. of just like, <laughs> sometimes just put it to yeah. no one's side, but other times it, it's fair, fair comments about whether or not, you know, maybe your branding's not good enough and actually that may be something to be, to look at and be open to. I was going to add that also different investors need and want different things. If it's a small check, if it's a high net worth, or someone who massively believes in your journey, you know, I, there have been times when I've, you know, I've raised money on the stock market, so I've done sort of like these incredibly intense processes where people want not only want to go through your numbers and your deck, but you know, your blood type and like your hair color. It's just like they always always want to die at the end of those processes. Whereas there are some either angels or family offices who have immediately aligned with me chemistry-wise. And you know, you, you know, you mentioned, for example, so we're the only um, scaling tech company that has gender balance in our investors. And I've decided it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I've decided I'm gonna make it my signature move just to make life harder. But one of the <laughs> things that that's also done is that has started to help me to find... People come to you, right? Well, ish, what I thought would happen when I first announced it was that every woman in the world who's made money would be like, I am in. Because I was like, if, I saw, if I'd made money and I heard that, I was like, if, if, if I'd yeah, exited and I heard that someone was going to do that to change the narrative about female yeah. finance, I would, be, I would be like, here is my money. Uh, didn't quite work that way initially, but of course I also didn't know those people. I won't email any, I won't message someone on LinkedIn for investment. I just, I've, I've lost much of my Britishness running a American software company, so I'm, I'm sort of quite brash about many things, but I still don't want to just ever ask anyone for money. But um, what I found this time around, I'm in the midst, actually I'm in the midst of a round right now, is even though I wasn't quite, you know, when I, when I was talking to people making conversation at that point, I wasn't always looking for money. When I told people about that, there would be occasional people who were just so uh, ready to commit to mm. that, that, that I was, the fact that I was doing enterprise mm. software and HR tech, which you know, one of my first women who wrote me quite a big check, she doesn't invest in tech, she couldn't give a crap about HR software, couldn't give a crap about software in general actually, but believes in building better communities and was like, mm. it really resonates that you want to change the narrative. So mm. I think the other thing is, that is something that I personally believe in, but there are different ways to engage with people. And chem mm. I think it's like dating, you know, chemistry, yeah. You know, it's chemistry. Sometimes I can walk in and after two seconds, it's like super awkward anyway. And I'm like, you literally could love my business and it's just, we're not gonna, it's mm. not gonna yeah, be It's also important to find the right investor, I think. Not just, uh, every money. every investor is different, totally. And they're a lot the same and a lot are, are just in it for the money. And I think you should avoid them in the beginning as well. You need a mission aligned investor mm. who understands your business, who understands how it's gonna be a while, I need some, you know. One of, one of the things, uh, so just before we did do our first raise for all funds, um, I realized that we're about a year in and Alex and I were the only owners of all things all plants. And so every time we made a decision about where we're gonna source our ingredients or what the packaging will be made of or how we'll actually move our food around, the packaging needs to be carbon neutral. We were making all these decisions, which are actually a bit crazy for most mm. people. It's like, well, that's costs more. Like, why would you do that? Uh, and we realized that we need to ensure that new shareholders who are actually going to own part of all plants uh, are going to buy into our, 
our values system and our beliefs. Uh, and that was when I, I mean, I'd already known about the B Corp model because uh, I've always uh, thought Patagonia are amazing, Yvonne yeah, Chouinard's so. incredible. Yeah. But actually bringing that into our articles of association and writing in the shareholder responsibilities and saying, hey, we're going to maximize profit and return to the people and planet and they're balanced and they're alongside each other. Uh, it actually scared some people away. Yeah. So when really? we were doing, so when wow. I was, yeah, yeah. So some people I'd worked with for years at McKinsey, they're seasoned uh, investors. They loved the idea. And then I said, oh, this, this B Corp thing, I'm a, bit, I'm a bit worried about that. That could get a bit sticky when we, you know, when we need to make money. And honestly, it was, it was really simple. You just say, okay, cool. I'm not going to convince you, but it's great that we've surfaced this, no props. And that was the end of the conversation. It seems like B Corp has really gained a lot of momentum, actually. It's, it's becoming more accessible. Does everyone know what a B Corp is, I wonder? Who's, who's heard of the phrase B Corp? Yeah, I mean, okay. we're at right. I'm not going to go any further. We're at evolution. I mean, like, seriously, I'm used yeah. to being in front of, you know, radical capitalists <laughs> that are like, what is that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. All right, well, let's move it on. So, when, since we don't know what people Yeah, yes. good. Okay. Yeah. Shall I try? Shall I just quick? Okay, so. You're just defending me, basically. Yeah, he's been. Yeah, yeah. They got me back. They yeah. got me back. Thanks. Um, it's a very novel model. It's only been around for about a decade, and it's really only starting to get traction now um, for uh, private profit generating companies, so not charities, not social enterprises still private companies that, that do generate a profit, or at least intend to at some point. Um, but it's basically taking the uh, thesis of a triple bottom line that everyone used to talk about, where you balance uh, returns and impact for the planet and for community and society alongside profit. And so the phrase that people use is using business as a force for good. Um, and, it, and I happen to be a big believer that if we could get every single company on this planet, not just labeled as a B Corp, but genuinely behaving with the B Corp model right now, today, it would literally fix pretty much everything wrong with the planet right now. We'd be able to move on to much more interesting kind of like top of the pyramid uh, in fun stuff as opposed to trying to fix a lot of our big problems. Just very quickly for um, Pip and you, JP, how, how easy was it to do the B Corp accreditation in um, yeah, I mean, we certified about a month ago. Uh, yeah, about a month ago now. Yeah. Um, Congratulations! Yeah. Um, and it took about a year and a bit for us. Although four months of that was just um, in B Corp's hands while they were kind of verifying, because I think they've had a huge swathe of brands going uh, to certify. Um, you know what? It, it feels like a huge to-do list when you see it. And actually, I think one of the positive things that you'll find when you go through the process, and there's a thing called a um, business impact assessment that you um, complete and then you um, use that as your kind of guide sort of uh, which you accumulate points through um, is that you're probably doing a lot of stuff that's great already particularly if you're I think probably a lot of the businesses in this, in this room are quite conscious businesses so they're probably working towards things that are hopefully having a positive impact on the planet and people um, but it is a big project and actually we deployed it through the whole business everyone had um, something to do with B Corp on their objectives, everything from, you know, moving us to sustainable energy right the way through to more complicated supply chain, fixing certain things that we wanted to fix. But it, it is really difficult. But I think for me, what's been the best thing about it is that it's about continuous improvement. So actually, I think we're really just at the start. Um, we're about to go and do a full environmental assessment of the business, which will take about four months to do to understand our carbon footprint. And that, for me, is the 
first big thing that we're doing as a business. So, yeah, I'd say if you, to certify maybe about a year, but to actually make significant steps in progress, I mean. So it also helps you look critically at your own business, yeah. I guess. Yeah, to go through a process work. like that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so let's talk about valuations because this is something I see a lot of variation. Obviously, Beyond Meat IPO has created a lot of excitement and hype around plant-based um, mm -hmm. business. And you know, a couple of people put a zero on the end of their valuations. You know, so <laughs> there's a there's a lot of uh, variation. So how how do you go about valuing an early stage startup? And kind of almost as, as importantly, how do you argue your valuation? How do you justify your valuation? Start. Yeah, well, it's difficult. And since Beyond Meat and the IPO, I think valuations have gone up, but also in the in the head of the people raising, of the founders. Yeah. So <laughs> they value their business like it's already Beyond Meat. But Beyond Meat was, of course, super big. They had conquered America. They are worldwide known for their brand. Mm. A lot of investors behind it. So I think you have to be uh, realistic and reasonable when you first raise money and uh, not value your business too high or even avoid it altogether, which is possible with a convertible note or a loan. Or Although you can't EIS those. You yeah, well, that's different in every yeah, country. I don't know that. Yeah, but there are a lot of things you can do to not um, immediately evaluate your company or give shares out. Because I always say keep the shares as long as you uh, can possibly can. Because if you sell them now, you cannot sell them later. I think there's a few things. First of all, it's incredibly subjective, as we all know. Um, second of all, I think seek advice from other people. Um, and even people you don't know so well. I was chatting to a few people already this morning about some of their raises, one, two, three, smaller raises, but you know, people under this roof. And you know, I'm slightly aghast sometimes people undervalue themselves because you know, I, I take perhaps, maybe I take for granted because of my circle, my age kind of, process that my life has taken me that most of my friends have raised money or run a business or worked in finance you know not everybody but that's kind of a lot of my corporate world exists to that extent so take some advice because one of the questions you know when I hear about some the other way around which are just like outrageously low and I'm sort of semi-furious about mm. investments that people have made um, you know yeah. to take large chunks of their company is um, is you know take some advice because you sometimes have a little, you don't need to have a, a large corporate board, none of this bureaucratic you know, uh, infrastructure requirement. Maybe have like a little advisory board, three or four people that happen to, to buy your stuff or love your things or be a great champion of you. Um, because sometimes those people can speak on your behalf so you don't have to have that debate. Maybe you can take that person to a meeting with you and they can be like a really helpful sort of, you know, fairy godfather or fairy godmother depending on what it is um, it just it, the other thing is also is, is about your ability to sell mm. you know I'm, I'm mid having that debate about my business you know I, I can do maths I worked in banking my valuation could literally be anything from here to here and part of that is a sales process um, and so you know it is incredibly subjective and so when someone does say something to you in the same way that no you know you can have 10 different types of no there are 10 different ways to look at evaluation or more get some advice from other people who have done it before. Yeah, I think that's really important. When we started Evolution, we first thought about going to this event. We went and met JP and Alex and just had some beers and a pizza and, you know, showed them a 50, like, slide deck. <laughs> and it was like, it's nice, but, you know, like, there could be some alterations. And we met with you and other yeah. people. And it's just going to people maybe you don't know that well or people new to your network, just 
certificate and advice, I think, is yeah. absolutely... Debt, maybe, as well. You know, that yeah. is the really important point. Everyone talks about fundraising and equity. There is no... There's not one... There's not a sort of short menu of how to get finance, and you have... No, you know, your early days or when you give away vast swathes of your company. And it might yeah. be irrelevant if you never sell, but the point is is that that is one of your most precious commodities. So mm. take very good care of it. Just very quickly on the kind of valuing point, I think um, being really mindful of, like, as much as you don't want to undervalue yourself, don't, that overvaluing, I think, is also really important, particularly if you're looking to do subsequent rounds. You know, you've got to make sure you're... Uh, you want a good story with your valuations that they're continuing to grow and, and as your business grows that um, you are uh, sort of increasing the value of your company however if you start with a crazy high valuation that's just through the roof you know if you go and raise a year later and haven't delivered the numbers it's going to be really difficult to laugh that and then you've got really awkward conversations to have with the current existing investors who might be looking at a down round and that's I think so that's the thing where I think what talking to people that know what they're doing um, making sure you're getting that right balance between valuing it and giving yourself the right value versus not overvaluing it and making your life really hard in a year's time and um, so really thinking about that runway how far do you need to get and what is the where is the growth coming from and how big is that growth and how realistic is it that you're going to deliver your numbers um, because yeah you can create a bit of a house of cards for yourself and um, if you're not careful it can friends it will go a little bit wrong later down the line um, so yeah it's a kind of a, a fine art I think I think that's great advice um we've got limited time so I'm just going to crack on um I really want to talk about um how we're going to get more investment to female founders I noticed something you you two are working really hard on there was some new research that came out last week by HSBC it said 35 percent female females experience gender bias when raising investment and raise five percent less globally than uh, male entrepreneurs two percent of women get funding mm. yeah it's, it's ridiculous so like why why is this happening then and mm. what can the, the our community as both investors and entrepreneurs do to change this yeah i mean there are some really depressing stats out there um and it's hard, hard not to ignore it and i think one thing I always find quite difficult is that you, the gender bias, and I don't know what your experience has been through um, boardrooms, but you kind of almost don't know what you don't know. I don't know what it is like to be a man in a room raising money. However, I mean, there are moments where you feel potentially slightly outnumbered. I think I did a fundraise over the summer and uh, met probably about 20 kind of institutional funds, of which one woman was in the meeting room with one. So in that sort of stuff, it, it, it is difficult, and it's harder to build sometimes a rapport with a room that is perhaps slightly not as diverse as you'd like so I think for, for me ultimately it's, it's about encouraging more businesses to start and I think um, it's the kind of pay it back which I think is really important and the role that I guess I as a female business owner can can do is encourage and, and support newer up-and-coming sort of businesses and it's something that I'm really conscious of um, the macro problem though I think is is something that I think it's the more we talk about it the better but um, is a bigger challenge but I think fundamentally it's about encouraging more women to start up businesses because actually less women do start businesses than, than men and actually less women also then consider raising money for their business so it's about also encouraging that I'm sure you can talk everyone has their own experience I suppose if I took a couple of very short points um, first of all the kind of negative narrative is just you know insane it's like so in, in venture in general 
uh, last year it was 1.5%, this year it's 2.2% of money goes to women. And I remember sitting on a panel recently and someone saying, well, that's you know, um, progress. And I'm like, if, if that is progress, <laughs> then that is the most glacial progress I've ever heard of in my life. Um, so a couple of things. I mean, I did my 50-50 in order to have a slightly more positive narrative because actually it's almost depressing. Mm. And uh, probably on every panel or anything you do, you get asked about being a woman, you know. How do you manage to get up in the morning when you're a woman? You're like, well, that's hard. Um, so the first thing is kind of, you know, the narrative is quite depressing and lots of us are changing it. But, um, you know, um, there are lots of things, lots of ways perhaps that we can equate, you know, what does power mean? And financial power is very important. So where people put their money, how they think about their decision making um, is very, is critical. So in my head, the kind of part of the change will be when a lot of the female founders that I know exit, hopefully at mm -hmm. scale, um, you know, we will be at the table as venture capitalists, as angel investors, as you know, early stage investors, as you know, more champions. And um, and I th and I think one of the things I'm learning from doing this 50/50 the whole way along is just a, I am learning that men and women definitely not only they invest differently, but it's just not so much on the table. Some of my friends' husbands invest in EIS, but just the wives don't. They're my friends. So just sort of. I've, I've, for example, in my current round, as well as funds, have a syndicate of women in private equity who are investing. It's taken me like years to find those, those women that would do that. But I'm finding ways, for example, for people to syndicate and all get together so they all start to invest now. And so, you know, in due course, it will be more. But um, the one thing I will say is this. <clears throat> We've had like 50 years, 20 years, whatever it is, of panels and diversity and this and this study and, you know, that study and the Rose Report, which ended with a mm -hmm. pledge. And I'm like, that's very nice. What do you want me to do with pledge? Any cash and deals. So I think the other thing is, you know, that um, this kind of that the conversation needs to be around, you know, cash and contracts that make our businesses more valuable, that make them much more investable, um, and, and you know, less about the whole, you know, women. If I see one more thing about women needing mentoring, we all need mentoring. You need mentoring. I need mentoring. Maybe you need. We all need some sort of self improvement. I don't know. Maybe you don't. I don't want. I don't. Why do I, I definitely know, need? I know it. you need. <laughs> What does that say? <laughs> I know you I best, and I know Michael least. <laughs> I'm like, shit, I'm going to really offend Michael having just met him, so you need big mentoring. <laughs> um, but, you know, men and women need, 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 all men and women do. You know, I can We all need mentoring. Yeah, and so just like, you know, hands up. Yeah, less mentoring, more cash. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's my view. Hear, hear. Yeah. <laughs> I get even angry about it usually, but that's me trying not to swear and getting cross because I've been, I've had it for 20 years of that whole kind of. Lay it out. This is the place. It's all good. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> um, cool. Moving on to, let's talk about trends and the future landscape of, of plant-based um, economy. So we're seeing people like Unilever come into the space and they're acquiring brands and uh, it's happening. It's, it, it's going mainstream. And we're going to see lots of, I think, really great exits over the the coming years, maybe, yeah, maybe some of the people on this panel. Um, so JP, uh, All Plants has been a big success story. You guys are really flying. I saw the stat since Game Changers has come out that you know sales have like gone through the roof. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, it's incredible. Um, so I'd just love to hear your thoughts um, on where you think the investment trends in the plant-based economy, what, what's going to be the next big thing for the people in the room? Because we're en ending the decade now. What's going to be the next things that really take off? Um, I, I guess just first of all, I, we all plants is we're very much just out the blocks. You know, we are a, just a little minnow, a little baby. When you look at the whole food category that oh, we yeah. are, the whole the whole plant-based food category yeah. is just at the very start. It's really. so nascent, yeah, and uh, and it's really exciting because it's moving very fast. 
Um, and if you believe what I think we all believe, over the next couple of decades, we're going to see a whole new world of plant-based food and lifestyle and uh, just general living um, taking the mainstream. Uh, and it will become not just uh, you know more plants living, but it will be all plants living. We will uh, more and more be seeing um, an extension of this across every part of lifestyle. So, so we're really early days, as are all plants as a venture, but it's just generally in the market. Um, and you know, for I think for all new ventures, the the opportunities are vast. And one of the one of the biggest challenges actually is how do you how do you prioritize uh, what to make happen, and how do you choose in which ways to grow? Uh, and for us, you know, we're looking uh, at new territories, we're looking at uh, new distribution, and we've got so much innovation that we're excited to bring to the market too. Um, so one of the biggest um, opportunities is to is to make all of that happen and, and build this this new world and do it uh, as fast as we can because that's how we make the change happen. Um, so so yeah, I, I think we're it's so in the early days of this of this movement and it's uh, it's really exciting to be part of it. Yeah, so many people come to me and say, "Am I too late to start a business?" I think no. Now's yeah. the time. There's never now been a better time. It's never too late, <laughs> even if there are 50 businesses and they're all yeah. massive. You know that whole thing. Um, I, I've been I've been vegan for 20 years and vegetarian for 30, and you know my life radically changed about a year and a half ago when sort of supermarkets had more than just hummus that I could buy um, as a food group. Um, and I literally, I mean, I've been working um, between the UK and the US for many years. I for most of my adult life have been carrying food, you know, because the hold in the aircraft is so cold, it's like being in the fridge. I literally, people go with like bags to go shopping when they go traveling. I would literally go to, to the supermarket and buy food and bring it back to the UK all the time. So there's a, there's a kind of radical shift. Uh, the one thing that I have noticed is that so I don't really like, everyone should eat how they feel, but I don't really like the taste or the thought of eating meat or fish, or it's just not, it's just never been my vibe. And there's a massive shift in there's plant-based food, which is food that I want, where it's all kind of ingredients that resonate with me, and meat replacements, or that kind of thing, which, so for example, Beyond Burgers, I've got to be honest with you, I really don't like the taste. Bravo to the company, it tastes like meat. I'm not interested, I can't bear it. Where's my other half, who, uh, as I constantly tell him, is vegan. I've been telling him that since we got together a long time ago. He gets very angry with me. We, he's actually now, he's, there are things that resonate with him that taste like the kind of food he'd like to eat. So the market is burgeoning in every which way, which is every single, to, as a consumer, because I can't speak to owning a vegan food brand, but as a consumer, um, you know, every single uh, segment of the supermarket is being disrupted. And then there's almost like a whole new mega amplified section, which is like meat replacement. And so, um, you know, I, it's so exciting. And for anyone that's making a, a brand that I eat or thinking about it, you know, a lot of I have a lot of friends that own vegan food brands because every time someone used to make something over the last 20 years that I would suddenly see about somewhere I would literally email info at and be like I'm so excited you make this how can I help because you know it's just it's um it's really important so it's a, what a wonderful time to be a potentially an entrepreneur that's selling to this market and on top of that what an incredibly lucrative opportunity because both of those things are exciting nothing wrong with making money because the momentum is here it's true and most companies are not catering to vegans only or vegetarians. The flexitarian are the, the people that try to eat less meat. They are the target audience because they are the, the yeah. they have all the money. 
Yeah. What? <laughs> Vegans don't have any money? No, 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 I but don't. I mean, they are 95% of the audience. You so need more mentoring. I saw a stat on this, just to back me up there. I saw a stat on this last week that um, of, the, of all of the vegan meals produced in the UK last year, uh, 97% were eaten by people who are not vegan. That's exactly. Right? That's flipping awesome, right? Um, and we're seeing it in all plants as well. Uh, around 65 to 70% of our subscribers all over the UK don't call themselves vegan, veggie, anything. They just want to eat. They're yeah, just vegan curious. Plant yeah, curious. Vegan-ish. Vegan-ish. Vegan vegan <laughs> but they, but also, just, also just want to like, eat healthily without much effort, and they're into the fact that it's plant-based. Yeah. They don't really care. Like, it doesn't matter. It just needs to be delicious and easy, and that's all that matters. And then I think when they, when they are there and they eat more plant-based, they they find out that it's not only good for their health, but also for the environment, the animals. It's a discovery process. And they are open yeah. for it. It's a process. And I think in the future, we will not only focus on food, because a lot of people are now creating plant-based food companies, but also materials like plant-based leather, maybe plant-based software companies, all that stuff. Oh, I think pineapple that shoes. Me too. We have the yeah. same shoes, right? Oh, yeah. oh look at that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you invested in Pinatex? Is yeah, that a yeah, plug? Yeah. yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, that's nice. Face up, face up, yeah, you know, you be your brand. Yeah, yeah. I have to have a little asterisk. Black mark that. against the name there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't even be invited back. Okay, look, that, that's brilliant to speak to you all, and I'd say I think you're all doing incredible stuff. Um, good luck in, to anybody doing anything. Yeah, good yeah, luck great. to everyone doing anything. Thanks for coming, share all this info, and um, thanks to the panel. You're all great as always. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us some positive feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast. By doing this, you'll be helping get messages about inspirational, positive, plant-powered living into people's earbuds. Until the next time, take care, and we'll look forward to seeing you soon.